listening to This Week in Health Innovation on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media and your host. On today's broadcast, my guests include Jerry Penso, MD, MBA, President and CEO at the American Medical Group Association, also known as AMGA, AMGA is a trade association that represents medical groups and other organized systems of care, including some of the nation's largest, most influential integrated healthcare delivery systems. Dr. Penso previously served as Chief Medical and Quality Officer for AMGA and President of AMGA's Foundation. Under his leadership, the impact of AMGA's quality programs grew to improve care for 26 million patients. Chet Speed, JDLLM, is the Chief Policy Officer at AMGA. Previously, Mr. Speed served as the Executive Director for Federal Government Relations for the Cleveland Clinic, where he represented the clinic before Congress and the Executive Branch. Mr. Speed also served as a Senior Counsel to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Counsel to the Inspector General in Washington, D.C. In this role, he negotiated corporate integrity agreements and participated in the global settlements of Federal False Claims Act cases. Today, we'll dive into AMGA's Taking Risk 4.0, Clearing a Pathway to Value-Based Care. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, what is the American Medical Group Association, otherwise known as AMGA? And for those in the audience who may be unfamiliar with the body of your work, give us some history on the genesis of the association, its mission, vision, and values, and any evolution to date. So who wants to start? Greg, this is Jerry, and thank you, first of all, for having us on the podcast today. AMGA, we're a trade association, and we've been around nearly 70 years, and we represent medical groups and other organized systems of care, including some of the nation's largest and most influential integrated healthcare delivery systems. So that includes members like Mayo, Cleveland Clinic, Kaiser Permanente, Geisinger, Sutter, Cedars-Sinai, Intermountain, and over 400 other prominent delivery systems. The average size of our member group is 400 physicians, so they're relatively large, established, and often they're even the largest employer in their communities. Altogether, our members include 175,000 physicians who practice in our member organizations, and they deliver care to one in three Americans. AMG was born, if you, born in the 1950s out of a desire of physicians who were practicing in these type of groups. They were novel back then, and they wanted to get together to improve the quality of patient care by sharing best practices, experiences, and strategies with their peers. So our mission hasn't really changed that much in the last 70 years, and we really want to promote that our model of care, this organized, coordinated care, is the preeminent model uh, for American health in the 21st century. And we work in that way, especially with our advocacy and all of our quality programs uh, to m- promote our model of care and the move to value. Excellent. And, and I noted in the, in the details of the survey that there were at least two IPAs that responded. Are you finding IPAs are still active in, in risk contracting and, and value-based health care? 
Oh, definitely. Um, IPAs are uh, part of, if you will, sort of the healthcare ecosystem that includes everything from medical groups to hospital-affiliated system. Now there's for-profit entities as well as IPAs and clinically integrated networks. They're all part of that uh, healthcare ecosystem, and all of them at different rates and different styles are moving to value. And would the core be uh, risk-bearing primary care medical groups, or is it a different complement? You know, we like to describe all of our members as snowflakes. If you've seen one, you've seen one. They're all, they're all a little bit different depending on their market, their history, uh, their uh, culture, um, and the same as with their regards to move to value. Some of them have been in risk-bearing capitation for uh, decades. Some of them have been new to this and are learning with some of the, if you will, lower risk type of uh, ECOs. And it, a lot of that does depend on their, their overall market and their strategy. Excellent. So, Chet, do you want to weigh in up front in terms of your role at uh, AMGA, especially at the federal scene? Sure. Thanks, uh, Greg, and appreciate being on the call as well. My name is Chet Speed. I'm the Chief Policy Officer at AMGA, and, and AMGA has a fairly unique advocacy agenda. It really is focused on the group practice side of our large health systems, and um, we don't really, you know, we don't really advocate around the economic models in fee-for-service. We have a what we call a value agenda, and, and we'll get into this, of course, later on the risk survey. But the risk survey has really helped us develop. Um, our policies around value. And when we think about value, when we go to Congress, we talk about the need for uh, data sharing between our members and indeed all providers with health insurance companies, because it is very difficult to manage a patient population and a value-based arrangement without knowing all the information that there is around your patients. And we talk about the need to harmonize quality measures. You know, some of our members report, report to us that they report 800 measures to various payers, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, and the commercial payers. And frankly, that's too many. You know, we need to get quality measures back to what they were intended to do, which is to actually measure and improve quality. AMJ had a key role in actually uh, creating the ACO program, the MSSP program, and during the ACA. So there's some pride of ownership there, and, and there are some changes that the ACO program needs that allow our members to be successful in both quality and financial ways. So we really... We talked to Congress about the need to modernize that, that program, and we also support Medicare Advantage because I think we'll talk about this later. Medicare Advantage is uh, where our members are truly going, um, in the federal setting at least, as far as the value-based payment model. That seems to be where the growth is. Let me ask you this. Uh, I think it's fair to say, or let me pose it as a question, when we talk value-based health care, that seems to enjoy some bipartisan support in Washington. Is, is that a correct statement? It is a correct statement. <laughs> yeah, I laugh for, for a reason. <laughs> it is a, correct, <laughs> it is a correct, correct statement. If you ask any member of Congress or Senator, do you support value in health care? And they'll say yes. Now, if you dig deeper, um, what does value mean to them? They may not be able to answer the question. Now, I think the typical member of Congress, when they think of health care, they think of sort of the old setting, at least as, as, far as, as far as we're concerned, you know, a physician in a small practice that admits his or her patients to the community hospital. That's what they usually think of. You know, obviously, our view is much different when you represent Cleveland Clinic and Mayo, which is a truly integrated systems of care that's really sort of focused on you know, creating infrastructure to improve their care and create better outcomes. Excellent. So that's a great starting point. Let, let's then maybe talk about 
what is the AMGA's definition of value-based health care? Some suggest this can be a spectrum of arrangements. How does AMGA see the space? So I'll, I'll get a look to the risk survey. We, when we asked our members what risk arrangements they were in, we, we asked them that exact question. You know, what, what do you consider value-based arrangements? And so we broke them up. The way we define value arrangements in the risk survey and on the federal setting, we look at ACOs. And in 2018, we asked, are you upside or downside risk ACOs? We look at Medicaid-managed care, bundled payments, as well as Medicare Advantage. And they also ask you about fee-for-service. In a commercial setting, it's very similar. It's capitated payments, full and partial payments, and commercial ACOs. We deal. We call them shared savings, which is you know obviously no downside risk, or shared risk, which is downside risk. And then we ask about our bundled payments as well. So that's how that's how we define value arrangements, at least for purposes of our risk survey. And that seems to the members seem to be happy with those definitions. Let's walk into the survey. Let's talk about some of the insights derived and why there might be a, a preference of one uh, particular expression of value-based healthcare versus another commercial Medicare bundles. So uh, we we started the uh, the risk survey in 2015 because you know the members had at least said to us anecdotally that they were going into Medicare Advantage, and also at that point in time the federal ACO program had been in operation for two to three years, and there were indications that the members were really moving to value in a much larger way. And we created the survey to really validate whether our members were moving to value, as well as to identify some impediments to making that transition. And what was interesting this year in 2018 actually was that we compared our initial results and. 2015 to 2018, and what was very clear was, was that the members are definitely uh, making a thoughtful, intentional move towards value. You know, fee-for-service revenues are decreasing um, compared to where they were in 2015. The revenue percentages and risk-based arrangements increased uh, dramatically. And what was also notable was that Medicare Advantage is the clear preference for our members as far as entering value-based arrangements in the federal space, uh, whereas ACOs I haven't looked as looked to as a an opportunity to ex, you know, learn experience, learn how to take risk. Um, I think the members have found some difficulties in succeeding from a quality and financial standpoint in the federal MSSP program, and I started looking at Medicare Advantage as a much better program to succeed with improving the care of their patients as well as uh, succeeding financially. And what's also interesting is that when you compare where the members were as far as those that were ready to take risk in two years, downside risk in two years, uh, the percentage went from 42% to 74%, uh, which means that the members are gearing up to take downside risk in a much greater way than they were just four years ago. There are impediments to moving to risk. At some level, they're at the payer level. Uh, payers aren't really keen to share administrative claims data with our members, and it's very difficult to manage a patient population without that data. And there's also internal impediments to moving to value. You know, our members need to create an infrastructure that lets them take risk, and that means changing care management processes, investing in IT, and people to analyze data. Our members are largely taking care of their internal impediments, but the external impediments are the pair level ones to remain. So that's where we stand. I think there's a, a real, you know, the big takeaways are a real move, um, an intentional move to value, addressing of internal impediments, and there are some external ones that remain. So, Jerry, let, let me ask you this. Earlier, you cited some of your members, which include trophy nameplates of integrated delivery systems uh, anyone in the healthcare space would r- immediately recognize. Do you sense, and having been involved, I know, here in San Diego at Sharp uh, in this movement going back a while, do you sense that there's an increasing momentum to actually fulfill the promise of value-based health care from 
perhaps prior periods? And if so, what do you trace it to? Is it more involvement of physician leadership? Is it culture? Is it technology, infrastructure? Or is it just this mandated transformation that is no longer optional for leadership? When we asked our members in the risk survey why they were moving to value, you know, they told us because we were, we were curious, is this a repeat of the 1980s where there was uh, managed care and then it pulled back and we went back backwards, if you will, towards a fee-for-service and uh, PPOs? Or is this one, if you will, going to move towards value and continue in that direction? They told us a variety of answers, but the answers in general were that they felt this time it was real, that this time it's going to mean that they are going to change how they practice. As Chet mentioned, they are making the investments, so they're, they're putting their resources in the direction of value. They're investing in information technology, in leadership, in changing their culture, in changing their care management processes to prepare themselves for value. And they're looking for partners in the health plans as well as the government that want to be long-term partners in moving that direction. And why is the question, why do they think this time they need to move in that direction? I think there's a lot of factors. One is the external environment. They've seen the strong signals coming from CMS and other uh, government entities that tell them that they are strongly moving towards value. They also are getting more pressure from their commercial carriers to, to look at the affordability and to, to manage care differently if they want to uh, remain in their uh, preferred networks. In addition, I think just overall looking at the cost of care, employers are putting more pressure on the system as well and beginning to, through their coalitions, look at different alternatives. And then finally, the consumers are playing a role here too. I think the consumers can only bear so much cost and are looking for newer and better alternatives and to, to make sure that their health care is affordable for them and their families. Our groups are also sensitive to the marketplace and want to be, don't want to be the last ones in the market to move to value. So that's another thing. They're thinking it as a strategic move as well. And I would imagine with this uh, quality pool of membership participation that you have opportunities to generate best practices within some of these strategic questions. Is, is, that, a, is that a fair statement? Yes. We, one of the advantages of being in a trade association like AMGA is that our members get to network with their C-level peers and find out what their peers are doing, what, what they're doing both to prepare for value, what lessons they're learning from each other, and how to apply those lessons to their own organization, their own unique organizations and unique marketplaces. So definitely, we think we have a host of best practices. We have them on our website. We have them uh, at our meetings and our, uh, and our speakers to help our groups understand what are the what are the lessons learned, what are the barriers to moving to value, and what are the success stories as well. Excellent. So, Jerry, let's, let's talk a little bit about MA versus ACOs in the, shall we say, uh, quiver of, of strategies. Uh, can you compare and contrast the two, at least based on the insights your members have provided you through this survey? Greg, I've practiced in both models. I was at uh, Sharp Healthcare in San Diego. We were 
uh, very involved in full-risk capitated Medicare Advantage. And in addition, we were one of the initial groups that were in the Pioneer ACO program and later uh, transitioned to uh, a next-gen uh, program. So I can, I can tell you from firsthand experience as well as what I'm hearing from our members. Medicare Advantage is definitely becoming the clear preference for our member groups. It's got predictable rules. There's complete alignment of the payment model and the care model that they want to deliver for their patients. Um, and because it's a predictable payment model, they can make the strategic investments in information technology, quality improvement, um, analytics, and care management. The ACO model, you know, one of the things that's a, a clear uh, disadvantage is the length of time that it takes between the end of the, um, of the performance year and by the time that the payment, be it shared savings or shared risk, is adjudicated and then returned back to the group. And because of that, it makes it very hard to make those upfront payments when you may not receive your payment for a year, year and a half after the end of the year that you just performed. In addition, there's the regulatory framework, especially on the federal side, um, that's uh, changing, sometimes changes midstream. Um, in addition, ACO is built on a fee-for-service chassis, so it's very difficult um, often to um, you have, to, you have to follow a lot of the fee-for-service rules that are in Medicare as opposed to the Medicare Advantage where there's a lot more flexibility. In addition, uh, there's just some structural issues with the ACOs that still need more work like attribution, risk adjustment, and uh, benchmarking that can inhibit. And, you know, the other thing that comes to mind with Medicare Advantage, remember, Medicare Advantage, the patient's sign up for that program. So they know that they're involved and they're much more engaged. Because of that, in the Medicare Advantage, you usually have a network of physicians and, and providers that the patients can see within the network. In the ACO program in the federal roles, the patients are um, free range. They can see any, any physician within Medicare and those out of network or, if you will, out of your system's ACO costs still come back to your ACO. And often the patients may not even be aware that they're in an ACO and uh, part of that accountability. So I think our groups definitely have found that Medicare Advantage is, is the preferred model moving forward towards value. It seems to afford more control and and create some additional opportunities for benefit flexibility, whereas that may not be the case in terms of an ACO, uh, but perhaps some of the modifications that have been proposed are starting to make ACOs look a little, move closer in the direction of the Medicare Advantage plans. So is, is this a binary choice? Need it be an either or, or could these be parallel initiatives inside a single entity? I think our groups are still trying to figure that out. Do they have an MA strategy for those patients who choose to join Medicare Advantage? And for those who are in a traditional, uh, who want to stay with traditional Medicare, do they have a, uh, an ACO or, or are they part of a SIN that's part of an ACO? Um, th they're still trying to figure out the pros and cons of, if you will, that dual strategy. Um, but again, I think if they... Uh, are, are trying to shift their bets and, and trying to move market share, I think they want to move towards the Medicare Advantage route. Excellent. So, Chet, in the value-based tool shed, 
Jerry's addressed ACOs and Medicare Advantage. Mm-hmm. Give us some insight what the survey says around uh, bundled payments, MACRA, MIPS. What do you what have you learned? Sure. And so it's, it's really interesting when you think about bundles. You know, bundles are in the news quite frequently. They seem to be a very favored model from the federal government and CMS standpoint. I think CMS just rolled out a bundled payment model around radiation therapy a few days ago, which actually be mandatory across parts of the country. Um, you know, our members have consistently reported to us that they, there's little traction with them and bundles. Um, and we asked the question, you know, why, why is only 1% of your risk revenues around bundles? And they gave us some – when you think about the way our groups are, con- are constructed, it actually makes sense. You know, they, they all tell you that you know, if you're a community hospital with a strong orthopedic you know, practice or practices around, uh, you know, bundles make sense. It's a very discreet, um, small population type of pilot. But our members, they have literally, you know, you know over a million patient um, admissions every not admissions every year or patient visits every year. And conceptually, our members want to take risk on a very large patient population. Um, they have infrastructure to do so. They have every they have a strong primary care bases. They have every specialty that they need. Um, and I think, frankly, they view bundles as a distraction uh, because you just have, you know, for instance, cardiologists or orthopedics saying we want to take, you know, our small patient population and focus on them. Whereas at the leadership level of our groups, they really want to look at much larger patient populations. Um, you can move, you can improve care and save costs only when you have a very large N of patients. So um, bundle payments just have not been attractive for our members at all. Got it. And what about the express preference for MIPS versus uh, participating in the advanced alternative payment model? Sure. Um, yeah, I think they looked at MIPS. MIPS is Originally, MIPS was supposed to be a value-based transition tool. When you looked at the percentage of payments that would be at risk, it went from 4% to 9%. And our members looked at that, the MIPS program, as something that, well, you know, we have invested in all the infrastructure to improve care and presumably do well in the MIPS program. And they really looked at, they predicted, you know, pretty nice um, returns on those investments as part of the MIPS program. That has not happened uh, because CMS has excluded so many providers from the MIPS program. You know, essentially, when they're looking at a when they were predicting a 5% increase in their Part B revenues, it really was only a 1% increase um, because all of the excluded providers um, from the program. But when they look at APMs, you know, a lot of our members are in either MSSP or NextGen. But I think they look at some of the requirements around APMs are very difficult to meet. There are revenue and patient beneficiary uh, thresholds that have to be met. And quite frankly, and if you talk to you know the Hills folks, they'll admit this: those revenue thresholds were um, arbitrarily chosen. And quite frankly, even our most advanced members who are into a lot of risk products, you know, they can't meet a 50% APM revenue threshold. You know, 2020, it just doesn't reflect an accurate sense of what the markets are doing right now. So they are not in APMs as much as they would like to be, only because they can't meet these revenue and beneficiary choice uh, p- patient number of thresholds. Uh, I think they also they look at CMS came out with, they basically restructured the entire MSSP program just late last year. You know, our members are looking at that program now and deciding whether they want to stay in MSSP, whether they want to leave MSSP, you know, can they take the increased levels of risk in the program? So I think there's a lot of 
uncertainty around the APM program right now, which is why you see you know, the end. The unknown answer to our survey was as high as it was. So would it be fair to say that strategy here is more about, or choice in terms of options and strategies, is more about the art of the possible in terms of where you are in the moment as to which direction you're going to go? I think that's fair to say, yeah. Yeah, I think think it's fair to say. I, I think what our members are looking for is stability and predictability. And I think Jerry touched on this earlier. I think that's why they like Medicare Advantage, uh, because those, that is a predictable, stable payment platform. When you look at MSSP or these other APMs, I mean, honestly, the rules change seemingly every year. And if you're a CEO or a CFO or a chief medical officer, it is hard to plan a very large-scale value program when the, when the rules change you know, seemingly every year, or in some case with you know, one of the larger uh, ACO pilots, some of those rules changed in mid-year. Right. So, so no likely strategic reversal here anytime soon. Ambiguity uh, in Washington uh, not, notwithstanding. So how could we maybe distill out essentially the, the key takeaways, key learnings from the survey and and use that to inform some of these strategic choices that exist out there for entities at different levels of evolution with respect to their ability to assume and, and survive under, under risk contracting. So some of the key learnings, and I'm sure Jerry will jump in, uh, the key learnings are, one, first, get your own house in order. You create the infrastructure internally that allows you to take risk, you know, re- you know redesign your primary care practices, develop the processes that can treat a chronically ill patient population, you know, invest in the IT and the analytics. I mean, these are multi-million dollar investments. And Jerry mentioned this earlier, you need to address the change management challenges, which are massive, when basically telling very smart people like physicians and advanced uh, practitioners that they need to deliver care in a different way and be paid for it in a different way. So get your own house in order. You know, find a willing partner in the payer community that is willing to share claims data with you, that is willing to um, basically find places where you can succeed, value-based arrangement, <laughs> work with AMGA to work with federal officials to make a viable MSSP program going forward. You know, those are some of the things that I, I, would, you know, I would think are strategic and also look to Medicare Advantage. Jerry, anything to add? Yeah, it's clear our members are moving to value and they're making those strategic investments, just the percentage that state that they can move to downside risk in the next two years indicates that they're ready. And they're waiting for the other healthcare players, like pharma, like devices, like insurance, to engage even more with them. They want those other stakeholders to join them, um, whether it's the government moving, removing some of those impediments or commercial payers uh, sharing data. Those are just two examples. But, you know, they're surprisingly optimistic about the future when I go visit members across the country. And they realize that they're going to move to these value-based models, and they're also very excited about the innovations that are happening in medicine that are going to help them give even better care, like telemedicine, new care models um, that will improve patient outcomes. We have a conference coming up in September of uh, 19, our Institute of Quality Leadership in Las Vegas, where we'll be discussing those. Um, So I think you're going to see that even though they're uh, frustrated by the pace of change and some of the impediments, they are optimistic about the 
type of care that they're offering to their patients and their communities as we move forward towards value. And that will be the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Jerry Pencil, President and CEO at AMGA, and Mr. Chet Speed, AMGA's Chief Policy Officer. Do follow their work on the web via www.amga.org and on Twitter via at the AMGA and Dr. Penso at J-P-E-N-S-O, the number one. Be sure and check out their risk contracting readiness report, quote, taking risk 4.0, clearing a pathway to value-based care, end quote. This can be accessed on the AMGA's website. For This Week in Health Innovation, Healthcare Now Radio, this is Greg Masters saying bye now. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.